Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. How did it come to this? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is Hanith Anun, our very first book-exclusive episode mm-hmm. on a specific chapter from The Lord of the Rings. This one is on the Window on the West and Forbidden Pool chapters. We covered the film adaptation last time out, but we are going full token token here for one of the book's quintessential chapters. Nice. Our spoiler warning, while the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies and books haven't. <laughs> we will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films and books well enough, <laughs> and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, the books, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. But not the book. I had a book come out recently. Uh, it's not my book. It is a book that I wrote in, um, but it is called In One Woman's Life, and it is a history of Dundonian communist icon Mary Brooksbank. Um, I have but one chapter of many, and uh, reading the list of people who I get to share that book with is such like, a thrill for me. Um, it is just some of the the most amazing um women and artists um and and radicals um from 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 dundee and, and dundee's history who have contributed to this book so it's super 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 exciting for me um it is available for seven pound fifty i have no idea what the foreign exchange is on that because like if you've ever seen the pound uh dollar market in like the last two months you see that it's just ricocheting all over the place could be three dollars <laughs> could be 300 but it's seven pound fifty from aberte historical society i think we may put a link to that in the episode description um but if you get a chance to buy it um it is uh, the 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 writing in there the research that went into this is really just remarkable stuff uh I don't mean mine in that. I mean, everybody else's. I had fun doing mine, um, and it would mean a lot to me for people to read about this uh, incredibly important woman who who made such a, an enormous impact and who should continue to make an enormous impact on our tiny little cold northern city tucked away on the farthest edge of Scotland. So again, that is In One Woman's Life, uh, edited by Siobhan Toland and Aaron Farley, and that is available from Aberte Historical Society for £7.50p. With the scent of herbs and stewed rabbit competing with the perfume of crushed cypress leaves, wet earth, and crisp winter air, Sam and Frodo find themselves without their guide. Gollum is gone, exit stage left, pursued by... Ho ho ho. Green giant! The rangers of Athelion, walking through the mists of time and legend, straight into a first contact culture slapstick comedy sketch. Say that ten times quicker. Who are these little freaks? asks one ranger. Who knows? Elves? Attempts another? Hell nah, dude. These bitches are too ugly to be elves, announces another, in a real leader's voice. Well, these bitches can talk, counters Sam, rising above his station to defend the honor of his people. When Boromir's name is a shibboleth, we learn that these rangers are led by a man with a rather interesting name, Faramir. And that, oops, got a blast, this dude's gotta go take down a whole elephant. 
Left in the care of another ranger, Sam and Frodo are introduced to the concept of Faramir, while the terrible sound of battle rages in the distance. Think Errol Flynn crossed with that dude Legolas as Mablung, and then add 200% more homophobia. Wow, Tolkien really had a way with words. Sam ruminates on the dead, who absolutely do not speak, and then takes a big old nap. Mood. When he returns to consciousness, he discovers he's in the middle of a Law and Order two-parter, as Faramir questions Frodo in front of some 200 soldiers. Frodo lets slip that there's a fella out there prepping to lay claim to the throne of Gondor, and Faramir reveals that Boromir is dead. Sam gets righteously uppity again, and grants us an absolutely magnificent bit of... Am I being detained? Am I being arrested? Then I'm free to go. Bye. There's some more back and forth, and we learn that Faramir saw... hallucinated? his brother's funerary boat in Anduin near Osgiliath, and so beginneth the most spectacular 9,000-word love letter to historians ever committed to fiction. Yeah, that's right, Mr. Tolstoy. I said it. Sequestered from the 200 witnesses, Faramir reveals that he sidetracked into a discussion about Boromir and whether Gladriel is actually fuckable for purely noble reasons, he swears. It was because he realized that Frodo was actually the real deal, and that talking about Frodo's mission in public was a very bad call. He does some detective work to make Miss Marple blush, and, with almost nothing to go on, correctly guesses that the thing that led Boromir to his death was the Isildur's bane of their shared dream, and that Frodo and Boromir did not part on good terms. It's the first of many moments of preternatural perceptiveness from Faramir whose conversational tit-for-tat with Frodo reveals as much about each other and the plot as it does about the very nature of Middle-earth. Nestled in there is my very favorite bit of writing, the bright sword speech, and a brief scene change to the magical mystery tunnel, Hannah Bannon. Our unlikely trio there continue their conversation beneath the rainbow falls that hide the ranger's forward operating base, covering territory from ancient history to family history to annoying elder brothers and the customs of the Shire folk. In the end, Faramir shows his quality to be the very highest, earning a comparison from Sam between him and Gandalf. We jump back to Frodo's point of view almost as shockingly as Frodo is awakened. It is the dead of night, and Faramir wants to show Frodo what the fucked up neighborhood feral cats are doing out by the dumpsters. Behold, the forbidden pool, this totally real and genuine and serious legal no-go zone that I absolutely did not make up for the sole purpose of fucking with you, says Faramir, a man who has spent the better part of 50 pages bending the truth to fuck with Frodo. Trust him. Frodo, blessed sweetie that he is, caves and acknowledges Gollum's fealty to him, and Faramir issues an order of unspeakable import. Break him away, toys! Deep in Guantanamo Anun, Faramir undertakes what our official podcast legal counsel tells us we should call enhanced interrogation tactics. Except there are no thumbscrews, shit buckets, or electrical wires here. Faramir inflicts scream-inducing pain on Gollum, entirely with his mind. That dude is a real creep, says Faramir, a guy in the process of doing telepathic war crimes. I wouldn't trust him. Tough shit, says Frodo. Unless you want to lead us to Mordor? Good point, answers Faramir. Fare thee well. But wait, he says, coming to his senses as he escorts Sam, Frodo, and Gollum out into the big wide world. It's dangerous to go alone. Take this. (laughs) 
So I never put together that Faramir apparently has Havana syndrome special powers where he can telepathically like fuck with your brain just by looking at you. Um, I totally missed that my first time reading this. Yeah, it, this is one of my things that like I kind of, it, it, you know, it, it flies under the radar because it's meant to fly under the radar because he's a good guy and like on team good or whatever nonsense. Um, but I, I kind of latched onto it because it's super freaky and super weird and like, I feel like it inadvertently says a lot about J.R.R. Tolkien that he was like, I know what I'm going to give my like ultra good guy, torture powers. And I think the fact that that has gone largely uninterrogated for like 70 odd years is, is a very little funny kind of bit of like Tolkieniana. Um, and one of these things that I kind of like wheedling people on when, when they go, you know, oh, Faramir's too good. He's too, he's too pure. I'm like, well, you know, he is Gitmo, man. <laughs> Oh, man. I, I am going to uh, reevaluate what I think about you and Faramir being your favorite character <laughs> having this take now. Um, but, uh, you know, we should play fair with our audience. You cheated a little bit. Uh, you dipped back into the Of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit chapter. Um, but I know why you did it. You wanted to talk a little bit about the point of view that Tolkien has with introducing us to Faramir and the men of Gondor. Yeah, so I, I think this is kind of fun because um, the the rule of thumb for Tolkien's writing, um, Bar the Silmarillion, which I don't think fully counts for these kinds of conversations, is that where possible, he will always privilege the Hobbit um, point of view over anything else. So if there is a Hobbit in the scene, um, typically um, Tolkien will use the Hobbit to, to kind of reflect what's going on, reflect the action. Um, there's obviously a really important exception to this, which is book three of Lord of the Rings, which is where we get Aragorn's point of view. But this is also kind of important because we really get his point of view at an arm's length. Like the language and the the tone, the voice that is used to, to kind of fill out the book of book three is this really sort of distant and noble high prose approach to, to writing. Um, and it's not until we get to book four that we get this kind of return to, to hobbitry. And, and so we spend all of book three as this exception that almost proves the rule because Mary and Pippin are so far away with Aragorn. Yeah. I was just going to add, I think it's probably deliberate that most of those first few chapters are actually Mary and Pippin's chapters. Um, the first chapter is Aragorn discovering Boromir. Um, but then after that, we, or wait, sorry, we might have to cut this. I might be misremembering. No, Did no, we, you're right. Do we get Mary? Yeah. Uh, so we see Mary and Pippin for a little bit first, um, and then we come back later with uh, Aragorn and the hunters, and they kind of piece together the rest of the quest, I believe. Yeah. So I think you're spot on that even in the book where they are away from the hobbits, they do still kind of use the hobbits as a way to situate you before they move into this Aragorn point of view that's a little more removed than the intimacy we do have with Sam, Frodo, Merry, and Pippin. Yeah, and I, I'm also really glad that you, that you bring this up because the the chapter, the kind of key chapter, the long fucking slog of a chapter that we get uh, the hobbit point of view in book three is uh, Treebeard. Um, and it's when Merry and Pippin are with Treebeard. And something that we're going to get into later in this episode for Shersies is the comparison between uh, Treebeard and Faramir and and I think the kind of like salience of, of their kind of parallels and, and the fact that we get the Hobbit point of view um, in, in a kind of rare exception to book three um, for Treebeard, for meeting Treebeard. Um, and then the fact that we get uh, the Hobbit point of view, although obviously Frodo's got his own point of view um, for book four, but we get Sam's point of view uh, to deal with Faramir. I think it, it's kind of one of these other really important kind of key linkages between these two, but that's something we'll get into later. I'm trying to contain myself. 
<laughs> so book four, we return to the hobbitry uh, and we start primarily with Frodo's point of view. Um, and the further we get into Thilian, the further east we get, the closer to Mordor we get, um, we lose Frodo. We lose Frodo's voice. We lose insight into to Frodo's sort of inner monologue. And, and instead, Sam takes the four. Um, Samwise the Brave really starts to emerge until just the phenomenal, phenomenal ending of uh, the two towers famous ending of Two Towers, uh, where Sam is alone looking up at the stars and realizing that he has to go into Mordor, and that is all Sam. Um, and, you know, there, there's, you know, there's a, a kind of symbolic superstructural reason for why we have Frodo lessening uh, and and Sam strengthening in terms of voice in this book. Um, it's, you know, it's all about Frodo's connection to the ring. The ring, the closer the ring gets to Mordor, the longer Frodo has control, or not control over, but the longer Frodo has to carry the ring, um, the more uh, a specter or a shade of, of his self he becomes and the less like a hobbit he becomes. And so we as the audience are, are not given um, the ability to see as much into his mind and, and to sort of empathize with him because he's becoming something that is kind of beyond the, the, the mortal realm in some ways. Um, and Sam is not. Sam is by and large untainted by this. Um, but in this particular chapter, there's actually a really kind of precise reason for why we get Sam. And it's because Sam is the lovable dumbass. Sam is parochial. Um, <laughs> Sam doesn't know shit about shit. And that's really important because he can be awed and amazed by things in the way that Frodo, who, while experiencing the world for the first time, is kind of aware of the world. You know, he's got Bilbo's stories um, and he gets them in a, in a far more intimate fashion than the rest of the hobbits. But he also knows a bit more. You know, it, he knows some Elvish. He, he has an awareness of the sort of place of the place and position of the elves in the world and has had more time to reckon with their existence in, in kind of a more concrete fashion than Sam does. So Frodo takes a back seat here and Sam steps in and that's so Sam can be the kind of um, you know, I say this with affection, but like the drooling moron who makes all of these kind of noble figures seem all the more noble by comparison to his inner thoughts. Yeah, and I think it actually does a great job of setting up where these chapters go and when Sam actually ends up spilling the beans about what Frodo's actually up to, um, or that the ring is at the center of all this. Um, Faramir could only guess at that part. But I think having us sit with Sam watching this uh, sequence unfold with the trial and then being taken to the window on the West, and then even more questions and dinner, I think seeing so much of that from Sam's point of view really allow like that moment where he does admit it's all about the ring it feels like it's i don't want to say earned but like it feels like the logical consequence of all the thoughts we've had with sam ever since we got put in his head before this um like we kind of see that just ready to froth and then at that point it hits the boiling point yes um so i think it really makes that moment pay off that we have so much of the like we, we're introduced to the trial through sam before it kind of takes a more frodo-ish turn yes yeah and, and i think there's also something really nice in um i think like fans tend to kind of hyper focus on on the friendship between pippin and faramir and their sort of parallels and obviously in canon pippin names his son after faramir and and, and there's that and that's very kind of high profile but i think there's something really underrated in the sort of relationship between sam and and faramir and and Sam is getting this emotional catharsis where he's the one who has had to carry Frodo, not not literally yet, but he will be literally. He is the one who has had to carry Frodo all of this time, and he's between a rock and a hard place because he can't help Frodo any more than he is. But he's also having to deal with Gollum, and, and to him, Gollum serves no real purpose, so he's just this fucking nightmare that he's having to carry around. And he's, you know, encountering this brand new terrifying world for the first time um and and having to bottle up this horrible secret and kind of carry this burden alone 
And and the way that he slowly warms to Faramir and then rather explosively kind of comes around to, to being, you know, in favor of Faramir is, is I think a very nice and kind of cathartic moment for for Sam, because it's this this opportunity for Sam to literally share the load with someone else for a second. And and even though he does it by accident, it's this this accidental or sort of innate trust, inherent trust of Faramir that ends up kind of however temporarily lightening the the burden for for Sam and by extension for Frodo. And and I think that's really nice. Like it, it's just I think it's a much nicer relationship to see um almost at first hand than the Frodo Faramir one, which necessarily stays frosty because Frodo has to kind of be suspicious of everyone, whereas Sam doesn't have to. Yeah, there's a tension there. I don't want to call it a hostility, um, but that, yeah, plays better with Frodo versus Faramir, and it's smart to have Sam kind of be a counterbalance to that. Yeah, and I think there's also something kind of like, you know, we kind of talk about the class politics of like Sam and Gollum, um, but but Sam and Frodo are really interesting, and, it, and it's something that Faramir actually addresses head on towards the end of um, Window on the West. Um, but Sam is a gardener. Um, Sam is not. Uh, Sam is not in the upper echelons of of, uh, of Hobbit society of of the Hobbitry. Um, and Faramir is literally. Well, he is now the crown prince, effectively the crown prince of of the the kingdom of men. Um, the highest house of well so far the highest house of of men that has existed without um with like unlike Aragorn's house has existed without faltering or failing since Numenor itself um and and so you know Faramir is the big dog in this situation um and and Sam is very much this this kind of um uh, disempowered uh you know economically politically socially disempowered figure who rises above what his class background is and what the sort of rules of his class are um and they forge this kind of unlikely um camaraderie or friendship um in such a way that like despite them being able to be friends it actually enforces reinforces and re-entrenches and tells us as the audience so much more about Gondor and about what Gondor's social structure looks like than if we just kind of been told in in those sort of road terms right so Faramir is basically a crown prince and Denethor is effectively a stand-in king and and it's a feudal society and there are these rungs instead we get this tension and these sort of um, resolutions and and splinters between Sam, this sort of pseudo um, peri, I guess peri industrial sort of worker um, or artisan or craftsman, and 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 Faramir, this this sort of old world king, and and that is a huge amount of world building in in one single relationship that is also absolutely crucial for sort of building the tension and and emotional like like foundation of the next three books of this story. So yeah, so I am cheating. Uh, I am cheating big time by going back to A Herbs and Stewed Rabbit. Um, and it's not just to make the green giant joke, although they are literally, the Rangers Pavilion are literally called Tall Green Men. Uh, and then Faramir gets twigged as the Tall Green Man, which is, you know, the joke's right itself. Um, but it's actually because um, I want to talk about the way that the Rangers of Athelion are set up in terms of combat. Until this moment... The wars and the battles and the fighting um, that we have seen so far in The Lord of the Rings, either directly, as in the case of Helm's Deep, which we see in, in Book 3, or indirectly through all of the histories and, and, and either told directly through storytelling or through the ruins or through uh, you know various other types of implication and environmental storytelling. All of that warfare and battle has been de- like classically medieval. 
um, it has been pitched battles between uh, two opposing forces fought with some reference to uh, chivalry, codes of chivalry and codes of honor. Um, and even Sauron, who is this great deep evil, um, will occasionally show deference to the way things are done in battle. The Rangers of Athelion are very modern. Um, they are not the world of pitched battles and and bannermen and heralds and bright colors for knights and, and cavalry charges. They are the world of modern sort of, po well, I guess coming to life in, I would say actually probably the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s, but really starting to come to life in World War II and then, it, or World War I rather, and then later in World War II in the Pacific theater in particular, guerrilla style warfare. And, um, you know, this is, this is more scattershot uh, 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 type of combat. These are not people who are waiting to pitch a battlefield. They are fighting all the time, 24 seven. They are always on, they're always looking for the next way to get one under the, the, the enemy. Um, and so this is the first time we see a type of combat in the Lord of the Rings that is closer to the style of combat that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien would have been intimately familiar with than the sort of Battle of Tour style medieval uh, fighting that, that we have seen so far. Yeah, I know a lot of people associate uh, guerrilla warfare with, you know, kind of post-World War II fighting, especially in Latin America, like Che Guevara comes to mind. Um, but, you know, it goes back to, I would say, the early 1800s, maybe even let's, late 1700s, uh, during the Haitian Revolution, when the slaves started organizing. Um, some of those slaves and former slaves were... Um, you know, warriors or warlords back in Africa. So they were bringing like styles and strategies that just didn't line up when the French or the local militias or the French army came in. Um, and like, they were just completely like flabbergasted. Like, what the fuck is this? Why aren't you lining up in a row so I can shoot you or do a cavalry charge? And I can imagine that would be very like disruptive to the orcs um, who pretty much like have control of the lands just east of Mordor or west of Mordor rather. But like, this is not how they're used to fighting, say the Knights of Gondor, um, even their garb, these tall green men, it feels like camouflage. Um, I think one of the most effective parts of the, of Herb and Stu Rabbit's movie scene is that when the arrows start flying mm -hmm. with the attack on the Herodream, like you can't really see who's shooting them at first. And then even when you start seeing the men in the cloaks, um, it's immediately like, oh yeah, they're, pretty well camouflaged there it's all greens and browns um and they kind of just fit in and that's kind of what their strategy is to like you know attack and then slip away back into the undercover because what athelian is it's just what brush and trees and stuff that's grown overgrown and not tended so it's the perfect environment for that kind of warfare yeah yeah and, and that's such a great point as well so i'm uh, sorry there's two different great things here one is the haitian revolution which not in a million years would i put together but that is such a great point and, and i also i think if you think of like the the way that like the the sort of non well yeah, non-traditional style of combat um, in the Haitian Revolution is is kind of later glossed over. If you think of like paintings of uh, Toussaint Louverture and like the the kind of more Napoleonic gloss that is put on him, he's made to look like an old cavalry sort of soldier. Um, well, not old. He's made to look like a contemporary European cavalry mm -hmm. soldier in all of the depictions of him. That's sort of how you can think. I think that's actually a really great avenue for thinking about Faramir and his sort of position in Gondor, at least when he's with the Rangers, is he's this figure of the old world who needs to be portrayed to the, the the population in Gondor as this hero, this warrior of old, but who is fighting this very new and and sort of um, hashtag innovative, hashtag disruptive type of, of warfare. So that's brilliant. That's super exciting. I had not thought of that. That's, that's fucking banging. Um, the camouflage thing is also awesome um, because one of the sort of first 
um, bits of of um, academic scholarship I think I ever read about um, the Lord of the Rings was actually <laughs> fucking strangely um, from a guy who's an academic who's based at the Citadel, which is the military college in South Carolina. Um, and he mm-hmm. wrote about literally about the Rangers of Athelion and their sort of style of, of fighting. And he wrote about how um, in massive innovations in, in camouflaged um, uniforms. Um, this is such a, I don't know why I slipped into the past fear, but there were massive like innovations in, in uniform camouflage um, that were, um, that that kind of hit the scene that became trendy in World War One. And so these were changes that um, Tolkien in particular would have been really, really familiar with going from that sort of old um, traditional style of you wear your colors um, to no, no, you wear the color of the world around you because if you wear bright red, and you're a red coat, you're a Brit, you're going to get blown to fuck. Um, and, and so bringing this in through through Faramir, who is um, meant to kind of at once symbolize modernity um, or modernity in the story and also the ancientry of Numenor that was, um, and and building in that kind of tension between this this very noble figure and this very modern style of writing is, is such like a fucking insane start to this chapter. Um, and I think also then immediately having them the rangers be kind of dumb because they're not really familiar with what's going on. Um, they don't know the, how to tell elves from hobbits. Um, and, and, and that shows a level of like um, disengagement from the world around them that to us, after having dealt with, you know, even the Rohirrim kind of have a way of understanding who the hobbits are um, or have them in their sort of folk stories. These guys don't. Um, and that's a whole new level of sort of parochialism that really sits in tension with this kind of nobility that they've got going. That actually kind of also fits in with what uh, Faramir says about how the men of Gondor are becoming more like the men of Rohan, which is more warrior-like and less connected to, say, the elves of Middle-earth. Yes. Um, So I think that kind of fits in, too, that these people would be almost the pure embodiment of the point that Faramir is making about how they're becoming more middlemanish, where, say, maybe the people of Rohan are becoming a little bit more like the people of Gondor. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Because so the the kind of um, the passage in which Faramir identifies, you know, they are become more alike to us and we love them of the, he says of the Rohirrim. Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately we're all shithead rednecks like them, uh, doing Dukes of Hazard spitting, um, and like donuts out back. Uh, and Faramir is really mad about that for some reason. Um, one of the things that's really interesting that I think also really connects to this conversation he's having here where he's, he knows that these guys are not elves, but he doesn't know what they are is that kind of defines a lot of his position historiographically vis-a-vis Gondor. Like he knows that Gondor is on a fucked up path, but he doesn't quite have a clear articulation of where it needs to be going. You know, the bright sword speech, I think, is is beautiful. It is one of my favorite bits of writing. And of course, it's capped off with um, I would see uh, Minas Tirith, a queen among many queens, um, not a you know, not a master of many, a mistress mm-hmm. of many slaves, no matter how willing those slaves are. Um, and that's a nice picture. Like, okay, good. Uh, he's against he's against imperialism, um, but it's not really concrete. Um, explanation of what he actually wants to see. He wants there to be a lot of success in the world, and he wants Minas Tirith to also be successful. But he doesn't really think about how to get there or what to do or what that would really involve. And I think that's kind of Faramir as a character. He He's very firmly against things and slightly less good at being very firmly in favor of things. And and, and part of this is sort of the, the, the character kind of 
conflict of the fact that he is a character in a fictional novel and not a real person. And so he has to fulfill a very specific purpose in this narrative. And so it doesn't necessarily get to be fleshed out in other ways. But part of it, I think, is also a, a reflection of, of the kind of weakness of J.R.R. Tolkien's politics um, in that he is someone who is a monarchist, a staunch uh, conservative monarchist, um, who is a, who is a Catholic, no less, in a, in a Protestant country, who is having to face up to a world rapidly democratizing. Um, and he kind of wants to be in fever of some elements of modernity because it is kind of good in some ways. Um, but it's also against almost every single thing he believes in other ways. And, and his kind of inability to um, to personally reconcile these things, I think, is, is vocalized really fascinatingly through Faramir, especially in these chapters. So uh, one thing you're going to talk about here in a second uh, is going to be about how um, the men of Gondor like meet the hobbits and have no idea what the hell they're looking at. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about how that's like, say, a real, you know, a, or a medieval culture bumping up against uh, magic or something that's kind of outside of their like, quote unquote, rational worldview, um, which just makes me think that essentially Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire is like every character is a man of Gondor in that story. And they're just finding out that, oh, shit, the others and dragons and some of these other magics exist. And that's basically the big draw of the story. Um, I just never tied it to, you know, the men of Gondor and them meeting hobbits because mostly because in the movies, it's just like, what the hell are these? Yeah. Uh, okay, whatever. Um, the more interesting philosophical debate about hobbits happens with Treebeard um, when they, you know, confirm with the other ants that Merry and Pippin are not orcs. Um, but I think it's actually worthwhile that that's kind of happens in both venues with the hobbits um, that on both sides of the equation with Merry and Pippin and here with Sam and Frodo, everyone's like, what the hell are these? Like even the tree, the tree forgets in this case um, or never knew. So I always found that interesting. I never really pieced it together as these are all the more like, let's call them the scientific men meeting like the magical world in real time and not knowing what to do with it. Yeah. Because I think there's this really kind of interesting alternate history possible in Gondor where like they have forgotten so much of the the myth of who they were. Um, and, and the myth of who they were is not actually a myth. The myth of who they were is actually real. You know, they are part of this, like, uh, unfortunately, this master race of magical beings who who did help, you know, who did sail across the Sundering Seas to speak to the demigods and, and beg for, for help in a fight against this all-encompassing evil. These are the things of myth, but they're also the things of fact. Um, and so for the, 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 the Gondorim who have literally thousands of years between them and that story, it is as real to them, quote unquote, real to them as the stories of like, um, Odysseus and Achilles are to us. Um, and, and to them, it could just be an allegory. It could just be a myth. It could just be something that is not true. They have lost touch with the fact that it is true. And so to have something like the hobbits <laughs> literally walk out of the woods and, suddenly and accidentally assert that all of the magic that they have heard in these stories that could just well be fairy tales to them is real is quite like it's quite the culture shifts all at once and um, it, it's almost like you know if um if columbus you know i know columbus wasn't the first to discover america but like if columbus had sailed to the new world and instead of finding um uh, a place where he could do horrific genocides he instead found the shire like that's a big split in the history of the world, right? Like, that's fucking crazy. I mean, obviously, all of the hobbits would immediately be dead because he'd kill them all. But, like, that is a big old split. Like, that's a huge, huge, huge 
change to the fundamental culture of of this world and and I think like it's important for people to get in the mindset of when you're thinking about the the Gondorim up until this moment at which Sam and Frodo make contact they could be us circa 1400 they could well have mm-hmm. been us this is the moment at which they become not us and that's a huge culture shift and that I don't think like the weirdness of that and the sort of horrifying truth of that should necessarily be like um understated really because it is such a key part to understanding what the fuck goes on in the next three books of of this series yeah uh thinking about it that way really is because it's not just like hobbits exist but this is like an entire event horizon you're crossing that (laughs) means like anything in any of the stories we had read now has some level of non-zero possibility of existing Mm -hmm. um and you know possibly more likely than not um does exist uh it's almost uh What's it called? It's not. Oh shit! I was. I think I was screwing up Game of Thrones with Lord of the Rings here for a second. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like uh, it. It kind of shows like not just that these are things that exist, but it's probably something that's been forgotten, mm-hmm. um, which adds a level of tragedy to it. Um, I, I don't know if like hobbits are written or proto hobbits or the Harfoots, good lord, are <laughs> written into the Gondor histories, but like. There was probably a time where more than just like Aragorn and some of the rangers of the north knew about the hobbits. Yeah. Um, th- there probably was, and that's just stuff that gets lost, just the same way we talk about the fellowship traveling through Aragian, and we're looking at all these places that once used to be great, um, but now they're just ruins and nothing, and like their beauty is forgotten metaphorically. Mm. Now we're coming across things that are like actual knowledge that have been forgotten, and that goes right into Isildur's Bane as well. Like, now it's just a metaphor and no one knows what a Sealdor's Bane is, but it's very possible, like, at least a Sealdor knew what a Sealdor's yeah. Bane was. It was a fucking ring. <laughs> um, and that is kind of a center mystery to all of this. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think there's something kind of funny be, to all of this because, like, you are absolutely spot on. Um, uh, you know, the lay people of Gondor um, before the kind of splitting of the kingdoms, before the fall of the line of Anarion, before the fall of the line of Sealdor, they wouldn't have known about the Hobbits. But the king and the stewards would have known. So that means Faramir's own ancestors, like the men from which he draws his name, you know, the Huronian Ath, right? Like uh, he is of the house of Huron. Huron would have known of the existence of hobbits in some way, even if it's only like, you know, there be dragons sort of sense. He would have known that there was something there and that knowledge is totally forgotten. So the fact that Faramir himself cannot even name them is such a sign of how, you know, he he, he continues to bitch and moan about like, you know, Gondor having fallen into dotage and, and um, you know, essentially doing the Gladrio prologue of, you know, things that were once known are now lost. Um, you know, but he is he is as much a part of that as anyone else. Um, and his family, um, you know, even if they have been politically more astute, you know, wiser and more fortunate, as he says, um, they they have also contributed to this loss of knowledge. And in some ways, there's almost an element to like, you know, when Sam and Frodo or Sam and Faramir rather talk about Galadriel um a bit later in this chapter, um, it's almost for Faramir, like if the literal Blair Witch project were like true. Not like found footage, oh, could this be true? Like, no, actually true. Like Galadriel is the actual Blair Witch to him. This is the level of like unreality that this poor dude is dealing with on a like a Friday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I do just kind of want to talk about is just the general performance of justice or a trial here that's happening just kind of broadly. <laughs> um, because what Faramir and Frodo are both kind of tactfully doing, um, not necessarily in concert, but um, through their own individual strategies, 
Uh, Faramir knows that he has to like, you know, they have certain rules. I assume almost military protocols. You find, you know, some strangers in your military occupied land. You have to like interrogate them. You have to figure out what they're carrying, what they're doing. Why are they here? Um, Because no civil person would be here at this point in the story. Um, So he knows he has to go through the motions of interrogation, of fact finding um, and make it in a way that like his man can be at some level just be like satisfied. Oh, they are tourists. They're just on their way down south for some reason right (laughs) now. Uh, I mean, that's not their actual cover story, but I mean, Frodo's actually pretty forward. They have a mission. Um, They just can't really divulge it. Um, And Faramir is very smart at... Um, just kind of leading the conversation away. Frodo is also very good at it. And then Faramir knows that this is all a public performance and that later on, once they're kind of in private quarters and everyone's a bit more relaxed, he can talk to Frodo and Sam um, kind of more secretively and then get to the truth of matters that he wouldn't be uh, you know, willing to talk about in front of his men. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think there's actually something really interesting here because like um, Faramir is like kind of uh, sometimes against his will, sometimes because he can't not do it. Um, but he's he's the performance guy, um, and and there's this element of like you know him and and Frodo having this kind of verbal sparring match where they're each kind of giving a little bit to get a lot more. Um, but there's also this element of originally he tries to do it in front, of, as you point out, in front of like 200 men, <laughs> which is insane. It's just fucking crazy. Um, but he also later has this, um, uh, this, uh, well, not later. It's not, I'm going to talk about it. Like it's a throwaway moment. It's not, uh, at the coronation of Aragorn. Um, there's this interesting moment in, in which, um, Faramir asks the crowd, um, if they consent to having Aragorn as their king. Um, and, and the consent of the govern <laughs> is quite an interesting, um, and, and new and quite literally modern, um, you know, sort of bourgeois democratic ideal. Um, and there is, I think, some very sound uh, canonical justification for why Faramir might ask the people of Gondor if they're willing to be ruled over by Aragorn, um, you know, largely coming down to the fact that, like, um, Elendil, Isildur, and Anarion led the Numenorean faithful, faithful, but without the faithful themselves, there would be no one to lead, no one to build the kingdoms of Arnor and Gondor. Uh, the, the, the sort of hope and dream of Numenor would have died without uh, without these lay people who who kept the faith, so including them in that sort of recognizing their sort of moral um, strength in, in in having done what they did um, is one element of that, and that that could you know quite quite understandably have created a sort of pseudo democratic tradition, cultural tradition within Gondor. But there's also this sort of element of like um, Faramir could have easily said no to Aragorn. Um, and, and in, I think like episode eight of this podcast, um, we went through the very sort of tenuous, um, line, the very tenuous claim that Aragorn actually has to the crown, uh, of Gondor, the, the crown of the reunited kingdoms. Um, and the fact that the, the, basically the claim that Aragorn is making was already rejected once by the people of Gondor and by Faramir's ancestor. So Faramir could well have said, no, fuck you, go home, dude. Um, and, and that would have been a very different story. Um, but the fact that he he doesn't is kind of interesting because he tells us up front that he's a monarchist and he tells us repeatedly that he's a monarchist and that he's in favor of Aragorn and that, you know, he's ride or die from him for him, basically from the minute they, they meet each other in the spirit realm. Um, but he's playing a kind of interesting political game in that 
He's absolving himself of direct responsibility. He is not the kingmaker in this scenario. He is the one who gives the crowd the option, and they themselves then become the kingmakers, and that has a lot more legitimacy. And and I think that's kind of the game that he's playing here with Frodo and Sam, and he gets more, I think, immediately out of Sam, because he knows how to wheedle Sam, and he knows how to <laughs> just push on Frodo or just you know purposely misread Frodo's words well enough to get a reaction out of them that gets more information than what he was originally looking for. And, and I think it really kind of reveals Faramir as one of the most dangerous actors we have, a, a, you know, we have encountered in this series so far. Even Aragorn is who who is certainly clever and is certainly um, versed in in sort of politics. Um, even he is not quite as crafty and quite as um, conniving with how he interacts with people as Faramir is. And Faramir ends up with far more information than he should have ever had in a far quicker amount of time. And it leaves both Frodo and Sam breathless. And they're real fucking lucky that he's a good guy, because if he was not a good guy and he got all that information, they'd be fucked. Yeah, what's the line Sam says that Faramir has a keen wit lay behind his searching glance? Yeah. Um, I didn't even realize that, yeah, he is kind of uh, whittling away at Sam kind of indirectly at this. Um, I'm sure in the 40s when Tolkien was writing this, he was basing it on the 1972 film The Godfather, <laughs> um, where when uh, the when the Turk Salazzo is meeting with the Corleone family, he's able to say just enough to get... Uh, the Godfather's son, Sonny Corleone. Huh, I never put that together. Uh, <laughs> um, he gets uh, James Kahn's character to like speak out of line and like against his father's wishes. But he w- that was enough for the Turk to get some information. Is like ah, I need to, I need to work with Sonny because he's the one who'd be more open to my plan. So we got to get the Don, you know, Vito Corleone out of the way. So then he will be uh, Sonny will be in charge. Um, that's kind of what Fairmere is doing here, and I would never put that together because you don't kind of view Faramir through that kind of nefarious lens, um, or at least maybe in retrospect or with the, you know, value of hindsight, you know, oh, Faramir's a good guy, so I'm not necessarily uh, questioning what he's doing here. But yeah, he's very much like, yeah, this is very tactful and very smart. And like you say, it's a very good thing that he, you know, he's on the side of good. Yeah. Well, and I think this is kind of the, the, um, this chapter in particular is why I always get tatchy with people when they talk about the moral black and white nature of Tolkien, because I think this chapter in particular shoots that argument directly in the face. Um, and 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 um, I think rather than saying that there are things that are good and things that are like things that are inherently good and things that are inherently bad, which of course Tolkien does say, he also shows some of the ethical um grays and 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 really um really sort of embodies them through Faramir and and you get this sense of Aragorn is good and noble but Aragorn's a bit tactless at times um and I know I hammer on mm-hmm. about um his his interactions with Eowyn and his inability to sort of see what's like right there in front of her and uh, right in front of him and handle it in a way that doesn't lead her to kill herself um Whereas Faramir immediately walks in, nails it, uh, and, and does a very good job uh, there. Um, um, you need sort of the dumb, himbo, noble figure like Aragorn to to be there to be the sort of unimpeachable, morally and ethically unimpeachable figure. But you need the Faramirs to do the wheedling that Aragorn won't get his hands dirty for. And, and you know, not just from this scene where he sort of drawing more information out than he really should. But in later scenes, when, when we see him with Denethor, Denethor see him him sparring with Denethor, we really get a sense of, uh, of a guy who um, is more concerned with, you know, he's not fully 
Machiavelli's prince, but he's more concerned with getting where he needs to go than what people think of him. Um, and which is why I think in some ways, um, Sam kind of softens to him. And also I think partially why Sam likens him to Gandalf, because Gandalf is also very much like that. Um, and, and I think Sam is also coming around increasingly to the position that just getting shit done and it doesn't really matter, um, if you, uh, if the people around you want to shower you with accolades is the right way to do it. Um, that's, that's certainly Gandalf's approach. Uh, and it is, it is increasingly, um, shown to be Faramir's approach. And I, think partially that is why Sam ends up liking him so much and why he does this weird baffling Gandalf comparison. <laughs> I also think that's also buoyed by having so much of this chapter from Sam's point of view because there will be times where Frodo will answer a question from Faramir and Faramir will basically like make a face that he or like he notices that Frodo hesitates or like, you know, is very careful with his words. And we're seeing Sam watch Faramir kind of interpret all this, um, which I think just adds to kind of showing that Faramir is a much more subtler and more political beast than we might think of him. Um, because once we get into the Boromir stuff, oh. I think the idea is, oh, he's is he just like his brother? Is he just not another great warrior prince kind of guy? Um, and, you know, that also heightens some of the quote unquote stakes in this chapter, because if so, then Frodo and Sam are basically surrounded by hundreds of Boromirs at this moment. Mm -hmm. um, not not of the quality of, say, someone like Faramir, but just, you know, a hundred men who might be more like Boromir than Faramir. Um, and that does, you know, kind of worry them. And that's kind of why um, they have to kind of play this like discursive two step in talking about what they're doing out here in public. Yeah. And, and I think the Boromir factor is really, really key to this as well. Um, Cause this is one of my sort of other gripes about how people badly, I think, well, not badly, mildly misinterpret Faramir's character and, and Faramir and Boromir's relationship. Um, whereas I think people treat, um, you know, uh, Faramir's waffling and some of his cynicism later as um, proof perfect that um, Boromir and Faramir were the best of friends and, and just the tightest, happiest duo there ever was. And um, I think there's a lot of cynicism in, in, in how Faramir handles the issue of his brother. And I don't want to take away from the fact that like he's obviously emotional and, and obviously torn up over the fact that his brother is dead. I think it, he would be a very different character if he were not saddened by the death of his brother. Um, but I think there's a little bit of um, artful exaggeration and artful overstatement to his um discussion his initial discussion of his brother and i think the way in which like he goes from being someone who is um you know uh, cutting himself off to exclaim boromir oh boromir um whither goest thou boromir um and um why did that like why did you go um to uh laurel and uh you know even evoking the latin of the of of the series to to sort of hype how how um desperate sad and, and 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 broken he is over the death of his brother he goes from that sort of melodrama to once he figures out that frodo um and boromir didn't really end on the tightest of terms he mellows out about boromir and he he even gets this line and i i think it's the funniest shit i've ever read and it's it is um the the meanest tattiest thing um but he effectively says um yeah so this is Sealder's bane shit um i can tell that that's the reason why uh you you being frodo you and boromir uh didn't end on the best of terms and well isn't that really just because um if the Sealder's bane was really a weapon of some sort then boromir that dumb bitch would have wanted it and you know he's always acting in favor of uh, 
um, supporting his pride and, and, and he's sort of vainglorious. And so Boromir would have, um, you know, tried to take that from you. And, and I can really understand that Frodo and I can see why, um, you know, it's sad that Boromir is dead, but I can see why you wouldn't have loved him so much. And that's quite a sharp turn from, uh, from, from his initial sort of, uh, you know, description of, of Boromir as this fallen warrior who is like, you know, arrayed with the, the majestic and legendary trappings of, of, um, uh, of the warriors of yore and who is, whose, you know, funerary boat is, um, lit, whose passage is lit by the light of the moon on its way out into the sort of mystical pseudo Valhalla. He, he does quite the flip when he realizes that Frodo isn't maybe totally on side with Frodo. And that's real cynical, boy. That is real cynical. Yeah, he just, he, he can actually vent. It's like, okay, you didn't like my older brother? Good. We can talk a little bit yeah. of shit about him. Um, which is really funny because he does give a very beautiful, like, memory of him finding or possibly seeing his brother's uh, boat kind of drift past him. Um, but I think that's also one of the reasons I don't love that extended edition scene in the two towers. Like, um, uh, maybe not why, but now I have another reason to dislike it, I guess, <laughs> um, is because Faramir and Boromir, I don't really mind that they're chummy, but it just like, it softened Boromir so much from how he was in Fellowship of the Ring that it kind of just threw me off a little bit. Yeah. Um, so like them being loving brothers, but a little more tension there would have probably made a little more sense and not just kind of the jealousy tension or daddy doesn't love me as much as you tension. Yeah. But like kind of like a tension in terms of ideology and then difference of self. Yeah. Um, which I think comes through clearer here with what Faramir is saying about his brother, both publicly in front of Frodo and his men, and then also a little more privately with just Frodo and Sam. Yeah. Cause, cause I think there's also an element to which, um, Boromir and Faramir, um, rather incidentally represent the sort of two futures, you know, which way modern man, they are the two futures for, <laughs> for Gondor and, and Boromir represents, um, and, and I should make it clear that like Boromir not being the right future for Gondor does not mean he was the wrong past for it. Um, and, and so, you know, Boromir being a man who, um, pursued war and glory um, above all other things in the height of one of the worst wars to have ever been fought in the history of of this fictional world um, is not a mark against him necessarily, but he could not come into the future um, because he wouldn't have been able to sort of get rid of uh, of that sort of obsession with uh, 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 the the war uh, as an e war as an end itself rather than war to an end. Um, Faramir. I would say is actually wrong for the present he he lives in, and and I think um, ethically and morally is a bit of a problem um, because unlike the sort of unlike the real world where we can look at something like World War One and say fucked up, um, and you can you can actually probably look at a lot of. Um, well, almost every single war I ever fought in Europe for a thousand years, and you can go, well, this is horseshit, this is bullshit, we shouldn't have been doing this. This war, uh, the, the, <laughs> the War of the Ring, is inarguably a good. Um, fighting against Sauron is inarguably the right position. And so Faramir taking this position of, oh, well, war is bad, and glorifying war is bad, uh, and, and we shouldn't be doing these things, is a little out of place, um, because this war is actually the right war to be fighting. If there <laughs> ever were a right war to be fighting, it is this one. Um, and so his slightly more pacifist position, even though he ultimately does uh, you know, put on his big girl paintings and fight. Um, his slightly more ideologically pacifist position doesn't fit with the conditions of Gondor at present, but does make him the perfect man for the future, um, and does make him um, the the exact sort of figure that that Aragorn needs. Um, and and I think the fact that there is this tension between Boromir and Faramir articulated repeatedly across uh, Faramir's nine thousand, literally nine thousand words of dialogue in this chapter. Um, 
it, it it's important that that is a that is that is a personal and specific choice made by each of them and that it's not that you know Faramir was abused by his father into taking one position or he really wanted to be like Boromir but just couldn't do it um or you know Boromir had no choice but to be a warrior Th- these two men have picked their side um, and, and they have picked their approach to life. Um, and there is a reason why Faramir survives um, and, and a reason why Boromir dies. Um, and it is important that those that the, the sort of agency for those choices isn't taken away from them. Um, and it also makes it incredibly important that the agency isn't taken away from them vis-a-vis Denethor, because as we'll sort of talk about later when we get to the Denethor issue in a, a couple thousand years from now, um, the the agency um, of, of Faramir in his relationship with Denethor ultimately makes the tragedy that is um, Denethor losing his mind because Faramir is on death's door that much more bitter and that much more painful than if it were just a uh, abused father a bit fucked off that he's not going to have uh, another heir now um this is a question for you i'm just kind of pulling something out of my ass here but is like the anti-war semi-pacifism of faramir does that line up with him being a little bit more of a historian and being more in touch with what gondor was or the principles on its founding because I can imagine as the men of Gondor become more like the middlemen, like the men of Rohan, more warrior-like, that sort of pacifism goes away. But is there like a historical component to possibly where Faramir's pacifistic worldview comes from? Yeah, so... <laughs> yes. This is a uh, this is a question that I've this been... Could, this answer like, could also be no if I'm way no, off base. You it, don't like, have to try it, to make it a yes. It, no, it is it is like the answer is is definitely yes. Um, the the it, like the reason for getting to that yes though is kind of difficult because because there's a couple different ways you can get there. Um, the the way that I've kind of favored over the last couple months is um, uh, the Silmarillion. Um, as a text, uh, would not have existed in quite the same way. I mean, there, there's the Quintus Silmarillion, which would have existed as an in-universe text. Um, but that tells of the, the, the sort of fall of the Noldor, um, through, uh, their obsession with conquest and their obsession with violence and, and the fact that they had, uh, weapons introduced to their society. Like that is literally a thing that is said outright in the Silmarillion is Morgoth, who is the devil, um, sent his agents to introduce weaponry to the Noldor and the Noldor started crafting swords and secret and then eventually Feanor drew a, a sword on his brother and that was kind of shit was fucked from there on out um, and and if you assume that Faramir would have was familiar with the Quintus Silmarillion which I think is not a logical leap um then then you can see very clearly why he would say um the the sort of one of the key roots of evil in in this world is is war um, and the obsession with war and and the the glorification of war at cost everything else is the thing that lost the elves paradise it is the thing that really brought evil and 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 terror and shame back into the world um it is the reason why morgoth and latterly sauron are empowered um that's going very very far back but like on a sort of historical philosophical um uh perspective if you think of him as sort of like an augustine or thomas Aquinas type figure who's looking back to the classical world to to justify his um his position in in the present day then like yeah it is almost certainly because he's a historian um if you are a bit cynical like I sometimes am when I'm a bit cranky um you might just look at it as um he's got the right spirit but is a bit dramatic is a bit melodramatic so he's right that a lot of the problems of Gondor 
are caused by the obsession of conquest. You know, Gondors essentially suffered a, a Roman Empire type thing where they expanded too far, uh, got fucked and had to rubber band back in. Um, and a lot of the rubber banding back in brought its own sort of sense of like uh, political uh, instability. There's like, you know, the heirs of Castamere, there's the civil wars that occur in Gondor. There's a lot of sadness and, and misery and, and pain and suffering <laughs> that happens because of Gondor's and Arnar's conquest. Um, is it is it then a justifiable answer to kind of be mad at war writ large, particularly when you're fighting the war to end all wars? Almost, um, maybe he's being a, mel- a bit melodramatic there, um, and and kind of extending the conclusion past what it necessarily should be. And I think, to his credit, I should say um, he he does start off his his treatise on pacifism by saying war must be while we uh, fight against an enemy who would devour all. So, like to his credit, he is a bit nuanced there, but like. I think it is. I think you are totally right to say um, it is probably because he's a bit of a historian. It's just, is that from the last, his study of the last 800 years or is it his study of the last 8,000 years? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this is actually accidentally a kind of nice segue into the thing I've been sitting on my hands and trying not to talk about for months now, which is Faramir and Treebeard. Those weird motherfuckers who won't ever shut up. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think you flagged it back in our initial Treebeard episode when uh, he referred to Treebeard there referred to Lothlorien as Lorelin Dorinan. Yeah. uh, If I hope I said that right. Um, And you brought up as like the only other pretentious asshole who says the old (laughs) name for Lothlorien is Faramir. And as we've kind of discussed a little bit already in this uh, episode, is that they kind of serve similar purposes in the Hobbit storylines. And this is... Like, I almost wish they adapted this book stuff with Faramir to the film, just mm-hmm. because then, like, these scenes would sit so perfectly opposed to the Mary Pippin um, Treebeard scenes, um, because I feel like a lot of kind of maybe the conversationalness that is here kind of plays itself more in those uh, Treebeard scenes in the movie. Um, but I can see them having a very similar vibe, like this just very knowledgeable, kind of antiquated historian character who's bouncing off of our you know, two Hobbit characters and there's obviously cultural exchange going on because um, these like older characters are not familiar with Hobbits at all. Um, And I think it just, I never really realized the symmetry until you mentioned that, you know, several months back at this point. Um, And then as I've like dived into these chapters over and over, rewatched the movies over and over, it's like, yeah, Faramir and Treebeard, like I want to see these two guys hang out because they seem like they would get along really well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, there's something really sad. Um, you know, I, I tend to take the, the view, um, of, of Faramir that's like, um, overly optimistic because, you know, obviously the, the end of his story, um, and, and the intertwining of his and Aeon's story and, and they're going off to Athelion to, to remake Athelion in, in, in their own image effectively is a, is a nice and hopeful thing. But I think there's also something desperately sad about Faramir that in some ways I think links him very, very sort of, um, aggressively to Treebeard, which is, you know, Treebeard recognizes that that the way of life of the Ents and, and the story of the Ents is is now coming to a close. There will be no more little Ent babies running around because there are no more Ent wives. Um, and, and his is a culture that is possibly no longer needed in the modern world or has been squandered uh, and, and will not make it through into the, the sort of next age um, after this one. And, there, and there's a really sad sense of inevitability to that. But but Faramir also has that going because he is this sort of um, paean of of, um, of of Numenorianness. You know, he 
above even Aragorn is described as this, this aggressive throwback to Numenor. He is as if the Numenorians had simply stepped out of the page of the Akalabeth uh, and into to Gondor, and, and as if all of the time that had elapsed, the thousands of years that had elapsed between the fall of, of Numenor uh, and, and, and the War of the Ring hadn't happened at all. He is Numenor come, come back to life. Um, and yet his way of life um, is kind of dying. Um, and and you see this, you know, it's treated as a as a positive and happy thing occasionally um, by Tolkien. You know, the the return of Aragorn, uh, the marriage of Aragorn to Arwen, um, the fact that the Rohirrim are effectively reintegrated into the sort of wider political um, sp- sphere of the sort of higher politics of the men, the high men of Numenor and the elves. Um, this is a it is although it is in some ways a throwback, it's also a death of of the kind of legacy and tradition of the old ways of Numenor. And 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 Faramir um is until he and Eowyn have their first son, Elberon, in uh like seven years, I think, after the end of the Ring War, um, he is the last of his house. Um and he is the last of the house that has held Gondor together for a thousand years. Um, nine hundred and sixty-nine years to be precise. Um, and, um, and, and there's something very sad about that because this is a, is a tradition and is a culture that he loves deeply, um, and, and, and is, you know, is such an integral part of who he is. And he, like Treebeard, is having to reckon with, particularly in this chapter where he's sort of detailing the history of Gondor and of Rohan and, and of the people that once were, you know, he even goes back to the house of Hador and, and the, the sort of three houses of the Edain, uh, and, and how it was that the men of Numenor came to become those men. That's quite a long bit of history to identify himself with. Um, and to know that that is coming to a close has that same sense of, of loss that, that comes along with Treebeard and his extended discussion of the Antwives. Uh, so is Eowyn kind of like an Antwife then to <laughs> Faramir? Yes. And if you go to the subreddit, our Antwives, he is also one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think there's also one thing that um, is kind of interesting about, oh, shit, sorry, I was going to say Fangord, that's like too pretentious even for me, uh, of Treebeard and Faramir. <laughs> I was the Faramir connection making my head spin. Um, so, there, you know, the Ents were brought into the world um, for a very specific purpose, which was to to shepherd and defend the trees against the those fucking doors, man. Um, and and um, they served a very specific purpose, but they're sort of inward looking um uh, approach to the world um, that also saw them lose track of the Entwives and to the point where they don't really know if they're dead or just gone, um, has this element of isolationism to it, where like, you know, they saw the world around them turning inwards. And so they also turned inwards and they didn't really fight against it. And now they're kind of like this unknown factor in the war where it no one can be fully certain that they will take the right side. I mean, it's obviously much quicker in the books than it is in the movies, but you can't be totally certain that they're going to take the right side um, in the war against Sauron because you don't know who the fuck they are. Um, and 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 that's a kind of isolationism. Um, and Treebeard, I think, points out kind of to his own detriment that this is almost inexcusable for the Ents because the memory of the Ents extends back to the time in which the world flourished and the elves, uh, you know, even almost, well, not even almost, Pseudo, sort of pre noldor uh, although some linguistic historians of Tolkien may argue with me quite fairly. Um, you know, the, the elves have seen it all, and they know these people, and they know these people personally. So their forgetting of uh, all of these other cultures is slightly less excusable. Whereas the men of Numenor, as represented by Faramir and Gondor, 
um, have had many generations go by since they last had contact with the elves. It's been literally thousands of years. So they have had a sort of isolationist game. And maybe that's kind of bad. Um, but they've also just forgotten. And and the memory of men cannot extend past their own lives unless it is recorded. And if the elves who have all been alive this whole time couldn't be fucked to extend the olive branch to Menas Tirith, then it's not really entirely the men's fault that they weren't uh, total besties with Elrond or Galadriel. And, and so there is this sort of interesting kind of counterposition between Treebeard, whose who's, who's personal isolation and also cultural isolation is actually kind of his fault, and Faramir, who bitches relentlessly about his cultural and personal isolationism, but actually kind of can't really be blamed for it. And, and I think that's also one of these really interesting um, uh, uh, kind of tensions that is brought up through the book um, and also through having Sam see that versus having Mary and Pippin see that and, and you know, the kind of respective positions that Mary and Pippin will play Mary with the Rohirrim and Pippin with the Gondorim versus Sam who has to, him, Frodo and Gollum have to go it alone in, in Mordor. So, okay, Gondor's original sin, we won't call it original sin because the Catholics will rightly get mad at me for it, but <laughs> but um, Gondor's original sin and Arnor's, and we're going to place the blame fully on Arnor because those fuckers suck, um, is that Isildur takes the ring. Um, Isildur does not have the strength to turn down the ring and everything goes tits up from there. Um, and then Isildur is, um, uh, you know, meets his death in the Gladden Fields with a whole bunch of arrows on his back uh, sent by orcs. Oops, he doesn't even get like a big exciting death at the hands of Sauron. He's just taken down by some fucking low orcs. <laughs> uh, whose story does this mirror? Ha! Huh. Boromir's. Of course it mirrors Boromir's. Um, and, and Isildur's line is the first to crumble. Boromir's line never really exists because uh, he's not in the Shagan, which is fine. That's totally legal. Despite what J.R.R. Tolkien says. Um, and, and there are these really distinct, clear and distinct parallels between um, Boromir and Isildur that are not necessarily played up throughout uh, the the book, but I think are there, obviously, if, if you're willing to look for them. Um, and, and, and the sort of brashness of um, of Boromir um, and the brashness of Isildur and Isildur in taking the ring, but Boromir in not taking the ring is, I think, something that's really key. And it's also underlined by um, Faramir's comment um, when he's giving his brief history of, of Gondor in which he says, you know, right, so the kings fucked up, uh, fucked up and fucked off because they stopped having kids, um, but the stewards were uh, wiser and more fortunate. And, and he basically says, you know, the stewards, uh, his ancestors, if he's being humble, managed to correct the ills of the king. Um, the king's line of the kings that came before them. And it's through that that Gondor has been able to survive. And I think nowhere is that actually better um, uh, like sort of exemplified than in the the distinct parallels between uh, Boromir and Isildur and, and in Boromir's ability to succeed where Isildur didn't. Um, and, and Boromir was much closer to the ring for much longer time. And yes, he did kind of try and get it, but he never killed Frodo in his sleep for it. Um, and in his ability to say no to that, um, for as long as he did, he he righted the wrong of Isildur. And it is him, not Aragorn, that is really and truly able to sort of uh, close the circle on, on Isildur's mistake and, and really start to, you know, oh, what's the Christopher Plummer, the god-awful line in The Force Awakens? Like, this will begin to make things right. That's Boromir. Um, these Christopher Plummer is in the Force yeah, Awakens. Yeah, <laughs> he's the old man who gives the shit to Oscar Isaac. 
Oh, I, I'm sorry. That's yeah. Max von Sydow. Oh, Max von motherfucker! I do this every time. <laughs> I, I thought you. Oh, I was about to suffer some real brain damage there. If Christopher Plummer was actually in Force Awakens, but sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. You're, no, you're no. on a roll. Go, keep no, going. No, every time. I think I've done this like three episodes in a row right now. Eventually, I will get an actor's name right. Um, yeah, you know, it's the this will begin to make things right, and it's not Aragorn who does this. It is kind of prophetically, as Faramir says, is the sons of the steward that managed to do it, and they are not really given any credit for it um, because Aragorn gets to sort of hubristically ride in and take all of the claim. But I think it is really important that that Isildur is kind of this original sin of Gondor and, and Boromir is able to kind of put a stop to that cycle. Um, and it is with him uh, that the old ways kind of die. Um, Isildur starts this new failure of men, the new folly of men, and Boromir is the one who puts a stop to it. So uh, one of the few things from the book that did make it into the movie is a phrase about Faramir getting a chance to show his quality. Um, you might remember it as the point where uh, Faramir has his sword uh, pointed at Frodo's chest, picking at the ring. Pearl. Uh, so uh, why don't we talk about where this actually works into the actual text and how it's completely different? Yeah, totally fucked. Um, it is. OK, so so I take this with me being overly uh, generous to Faramir, but it's a bad joke. Like, it's a bad joke in the text, right? Like, I think there's possibly a moment in which so Faramir lies, right? Faramir is a straight up liar. Uh, nobody will say this. I'm the only one that is brave enough to say this. Faramir is a liar. Uh, and when he says he's not tempted by the ring, that's horseshit. And there's no reason anybody should treat that credibly. He's absolutely tempted by the ring. And the moment in which he's tempted by the ring is definitely that moment when he stands up and he's like, aha, now I have you in my clutches. I can take the ring. And it's that split second of that. And then he sits down going, ha ha ha, I really had you there, didn't I? And Sam and Frodo have to go, ha ha ha, funny joke. We all love good jokes here. But I think the actual like seriousness of that line is vastly overplayed um obviously because instead of letting it be a two-second faramir has no social skills moment they blow it into the whole plot for faramir for an entire movie um but i think there's a there is this sort of sense of of kind of grim humor that faramir has and and the sense that like you know he is able to make jokes about things that are deeply unfunny because like he's just had a really shitty life at this point um that i think gets lost in the it lost in translation from book to movie and I was going to try and be like, oh, it's just because these people can't read and friend Walsh and Philippa Boyens and Peter Jackson, uh, illiterate morons. But I actually think it's them coming from um, the position of not having lived through wars. And I'm trying not to like boomer it up being like, oh, they don't know how we did it. Uh, I was there when they stormed D-Day. But like, if you look at some of Tolkien's letters, particularly from from World War II, from the height of World War II, you see him making jokes that to us seem a bit crass. Um, and, and it is actually quite common, this this kind of gallows humor that people were using to get themselves through the war. And the jokes that they were making that to us would be like, oh my God, you can't say that. You really can't say that about the war. Like there are people out there dying. They were using as a sort of psychological defense mechanism because people were out there dying. Their their friends and their family were out there dying. Um, and, and when you get to the 1990s, when this this series is being adapted, um, there's not really, you know, the 90s is this kind of point of artificially inflated happiness. Everybody's, you know, high off of the Coke that they have bought, the artisan Coke that they bought with their money from the dot-com boom. Um, and they're not really used to that sense of, like, cultural devastation that was endemic to the world um, in, 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 you know, 
starting from World War One and leading directly to clear through, I would say, even to 1955 and later. Um, and and the sense of having to tell these jokes that like maybe aren't necessarily funny, but that you're having to tell because otherwise you're just going to blow your fucking brains out was a bit of a lost art by the time you get to the 1990s, which is why I would argue things like We Didn't Speak show up because people use humor in slightly dumber ways as like a di- like not as a distancing tool from like the harsh reality of the world, but like as a distancing tool from the world at all. Um, and so I think that kind of misinterpretation, even though I am apt to get mad about it, is actually a really interesting historical document and and kind of a sign of uh, the the kind of the times and the change in culture vis-a-vis like um per like you know popular emotion around uh, war and and how to hashtag cope. Yeah, uh, fun, funnily enough, uh, for the 20 years after the two towers came out in theaters, I have been using the phrase show his quality or show their quality, like with death, deathly seriousness, <laughs> um, because, you know, not really reading the book. Uh, I, it, it seemed like it was a very, very serious conversation and a very serious word choice that was happening. Um, so to come back to it and see how it's kind of lightheartedly applied in these chapters is really fun. Um because right, it's it's definitely not with the same stakes as I describe where Faramir has a sword to Frodo's chest and saying mm. it. Um, it is definitely a little more casual. And by the time it's said in the chapter, I'm I'm not really worried about Frodo and Sam like living or surviving or anything like that. Um, it's just like, oh, yeah, it's just a turn of phrase. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And, and I think there's also something where like... Um maybe this is me reading I would never read too far into Lord of the Rings but maybe this is me reading too far into Lord of the Rings Faramir does not stroke, strike me as the kind of guy who's particularly concerned with what other people think about him and I think um, uh, uh, Faramir being like now's the time to show how good I am is a bit um, it's a bit acerbic like, like I don't think he ever you know he may have wavered a bit I mean I do think he wavered a bit I do think he is a bullshitter about whether or not he was tempted by the ring um but um I think um a bit of what's going on there is is him being so self-assured in his moral position and his ideological position that he's like I can make jokes about this surely everybody would understand that I would never do this bad thing and the two little traumatized hobbits who have just met his brother uh who or is not that sure in his ideological opinion or or is actually but it's the wrong way um are you know trembling in the corner shaking and not getting the, the element of sarcasm and I think like rather than this being a way of like actually ratcheting up the narrative tension it's more about explaining who Faramir is as a character and what kind of person he is about to become for this story as it progresses so I'm not going to get into it here Um, I actually did reading these chapters actually find some ways to uh, defend some of the sequencing of what the movie did Um, like I kind of just like how Gollum comes back into the story in the films um, kind of as Because I think Faramir gets all his answers from Frodo and Sam before the Forbidden Pool in the Mm -hmm. book. Um, And Gollum ends up being kind of the missing key in the film, um, where he's the one who says they have the precious and that's how Faramir figures it out and becomes, you know, a heel and, you know, starts threatening Frodo. Uh, Not stuff I like, but I think there's something I do like to the way that Jackson and company sequence the events so that the Forbidden Pool just kind of feels 
kind of feels like tacked on here, kind of like a denouement to the window on the West, as mm. opposed to the next part of moving on to the journey to Mordor. So I do kind of like that part of the film adaptation. I really don't. Um, now that we've talked about it so many times, I really don't like the film adaptation of the window on the West as a whole, but there is some of the sequencing with Gollum and the forbidden pool that I do enjoy, or I think, I think is a smart choice for what the films ended up doing with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, like, I think I can basically agree with that. I, I feel like the position that, um, the, uh, forbidden pool takes in the book is more about, um, is more about making the point that there is only a certain kind of depraved little freak that would actually go into Mordor. Um, and it's not <laughs> someone who's doing it fully willingly. Um, and, and I think that is kind of there for the purpose of shoring up like Frodo's long hard fall. But like, I think that's kind of only necessary in a book where we can't see Frodo's eyes getting all bloodshot. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of fine to like chop up and rearrange for the movie, like you say, because it gives it a bit more of a sense of like Gollum is integrated into this unit. Um, even if it makes Frodo and Sam, I think, like, I think, uh, it's okay. I don't need to get into it. it I, I think there, I think some of the ways that movie Faramir, who is an abomination unto God in this scene, um, like some of the ways he does treat Sam and Frodo, it like are kind of justifiable for how cagey and weird they're being. Um, but like, that is internally consistent, I think, within itself, even if I think it's wrong as an adaptation choice, like within the story it is telling in that movie, it's consistent. And I think having Gollum be the little shithead who who rats on them, I think is also quite internally consistent for the story that they are trying to tell with that little trio trifecta from hell. <laughs> yeah. And with all love to David Wenham, I'd rather give Andy Circus Sork- more work. And if I should take away from any of the main cast, I'd probably take away lines from David Wenham. Yeah. Um, again, no offense, but it's just you're you're up against an absolute like murderer's row of actors or <laughs> actors who made their name in these films. And unfortunately, you're one of the few people who didn't really get that boost to stardom following these movies. Yeah. Um, I feel I feel bad ending this episode being mean to the actor who played Faramir, <laughs> but uh, you can you can blame Peter Jackson for that. We didn't do shit to uh, the character. <laughs> Amen. So before we sign off today, we would like to thank our $5 and $10 patrons. Just as a reminder, our $10 patrons, we will read their names off at the end of every episode with a special Middle Earth name that Emily has uh, concocted for them. And for our $5 patrons, same thing, except we read them on a rotating basis. So today, we would like to thank Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Enranwo Minyatar. Maddie Hugh, a.k.a. Ithranor of Kokarthar. Ed the Revelator, uh, the Silent Spider, Guardian of Kirith Ungol. Lothamana Palinka, a.k.a. Johnny Flores Jr. Cam Lewis, a.k.a. Sal Quendil. <laughs> Zach Newman, a.k.a. Lyqua Malma. <laughs> and our $5 patrons we'd like to thank today are Stacey O'Neill Robinson, a.k.a. Adonian O. I. Red Harisir. 
Yeah, nailed it. And Zach Moser, a.k.a. Miratumba. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycapmypod, where you'll get access to or early access to all episodes, exclusive Patreon-only episodes, and other bonus content. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, which is where I will be featuring on Faramir's post-mortem diss track of Boromir. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ithraglir and Drethion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.